You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So in a few months, I will turn 40. It's coming. It's a milestone year. It marks the halfway point for life expectancy. And I know I'm growing older because earlier this week, I woke up with lower back pain. It's like the sign of old age. Now, it wasn't the kind that like you can't get out of bed, but it was the kind where you reach for Advil before coffee. It's a particular kind of pain. And you might be asking, well, Clint, what did you do to injure your back? You might think I lifted something too heavy. Nope, that wasn't it. You might think I injured it in a pickup game of some kind. Nope, that wasn't it either. You might think I fell down. No, I didn't do that. How did I injure my back? I slept. <laughs> That's it. Went to bed normal. I went to sleep. And then I woke up with back pain. Apparently, as you get older, sleep can be hazardous to your health. David Gibson describes growing old like this. Growing old makes a body and an inner self part company as one ages and the other stays young. It leaves a person depressed at the disconnect between the mirror and the mind. How we, look at, uh, how we look to others versus how we think about ourselves and generates denial as our limbs begin to do with difficulty the things they used to do with ease. Maybe you've experienced that before. You've looked in the mirror and you feel a certain age, but the mirror betrays that feeling. How do we deal with the inevitability of aging? How do we deal with the fact that time is undefeated against humanity? How do we embrace the reality that death doesn't consult our schedule or ask for your opinion? This morning, yet again, the preacher of Ecclesiastes confronts us with our own mortality. And while it may seem repetitive, it is necessary because our default response to death is usually denial or despair. We live in denial of it, living as if we're guaranteed the next day, doing everything we can to push any thought of death to the furthest resource, recesses of our mind. In fact, did you know there's a growing, rising trend of people who call themselves amortals? They're not immortal, they know that, but they're amortal, like, like an atheist. There's a theist, people who believe in theism and God, and then there's atheists, they don't believe in God. That the, These amortals, they subscribe to this way of life. They structure their lives in such a way to intentionally ignore death. So while we might unintentionally do it, they purposefully structure their lives so that they never really have to think of death. See, according to Amortals, your body is the best thing you've got going for you, and therefore you should spare no expense to keep it functioning at the most optimal level as long as you can in order to live as long as you can. So if you can't be immortal, then at least be amortal and deny death as long as as possible. On the other hand, some people just give in to despair. When they think about death, it just leads to this, this unyielding place of despair and hopelessness. Since death swallows up life, despair says, then what's the point of anything at all? There is no point, nothing matters, therefore there is no hope, only despair. And what I'd like to present to you this morning is a third option that's not unyielding despair and is not uh, denial. Ecclesiastes has kept death in the forefront to make what I think is a spectacular point. Though death is tragically invasive and though it is irreversible and inevitable, it can shape your life for good. Now don't confuse that. that. That doesn't mean death is a friend. Death is never presented in the Bible as a good thing. Like we're so glad death is here. That's not what the preacher is saying. 
What he's saying is because it's inevitable and unavoidable, maybe it can shape the way we live. See, death can bring your life into focus like nothing else can. All of us have an eventual date with death. And wisdom says, let that eventual date with death be a mentor to teach you how to live. It can give you a determined focus. Death can help define your purpose. It can give you a discerning spirit to know the difference between what is trivial and what is significant. What if instead of living in denial or despair, we allow death to shape our lives? As we work through our passage this morning, the preacher has three commands to follow to live a life that's shaped by death. So first in chapter 11, verses 7 to 9, we'll see the command to rejoice in your days. Rejoice in your days. A life that's shaped by death is to be a life marked by joy. It doesn't mean that there won't be dark days, but the theme, the constant chorus of our lives is to be one of joy, not despair. Second, in chapter 11, verse 10, we'll see a command to remove anxiety from our heart. If we're going to live a life shaped by death, we need to remove anxiety from our heart. Nothing kills joy like persistent anxiety. And then third and finally in chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, we're going to see a command to remember your creator. Remember your creator. The preacher becomes a poet in these eight verses as he describes the descent of aging that culminates in death. And what ultimately will keep us focused on a life well lived, what will keep us from spiraling into despair or living in denial is a constant reminder of our maker. Let's start together to see the, uh, the first command to rejoice in your days. Verse 7, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Now we'll stop there. This is a verse that is poetically capturing the bliss of being alive. In a few months, we are, or really a few weeks, we're going to be heading into the descent of winter, won't we? I mean, it's like you go outside at 4.30 and it's already dark, right? It's going to get bitterly cold. Now think about what happens in spring. As winter melts away and gives to spring, what happens? Well, the earth is rejuvenated as longer days lengthen and the sun comes out. The earth comes alive again. We will bask in the sun. Even though it will be like 50 degrees, you'll see people out sunbathing. It's amazing. Physically, emotionally, just sitting in the sun rejuvenates us, right? Because there's life there without the sun without light, there is no life. That's what he's capturing here. He's saying, it is good to be alive. And we're to recognize the goodness of life, not merely in theory, not merely in word, but in actual practice. The goodness of life demands a response. And what is that response supposed to be? Joy. Look at verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But I remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. This is written in the kind of grammar that says rejoicing is not optional. It's not like there are some people who are rejoicers and then there's some people who are gloomy. No, he's saying everyone should rejoice in the days God has given them. We are to live a life marked by joy. Now again, the preacher is a realist. Okay, he's not an optimist. He knows there will be dark days. So he's, he's confronting us with that truth. There will be dark days, of course. Are there going to be days where it's hard to see and feel the light? Of course. There will be days when it feels like that, 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 that there's no light at all. But friends, the darkness does not outshine the light. We aren't merely instructed to endure life. And the Bible does say that. There are times where the Bible says we need to endure. But that's not what he's saying here. We are being exhorted to enjoy life. 
Now, if you've been tracking with us throughout these sermons, this is the seventh time the preacher has explicitly said to enjoy life. I've listed them up here for you just by way of reminder. Now, this was one of the surprises of the book for me. I'd read Ecclesiastes several times in my Christian life, but I'd never preached through it or really studied through it in this kind of way. And this was one of the more surprising things to me. Every time, you know, even time when I mention to someone, hey, we're preaching through Ecclesiastes, what do they, they mention? Oh, it's a book of despair. It's a book of, of, of gloom. And I've gotten to say, you know, as much as there is talking about the hard realities of life, it's met with rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Seven different times the preacher tells us rejoice. Through all the realism, all the gut punches, all the talk about death, and he certainly talks about death a lot. For all the hard truths, Ecclesiastes is also a book concerned with joy. It's no coincidence that Solomon chooses to say it seven times. For the Hebrew, seven is not a coincidence. It's intentional. It's the, 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 the number of perfection, the number of wholeness. In other words, he's saying the wise life will be marked by joy. Let me say it seven different times in seven different ways so that you see it and don't miss it. And if you missed it in verse 8, don't worry, he says it again. Look at verse 9. Rejoice. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. So in verse 8 is a general call to everyone to enjoy the life that God has given them. And now in verse 9, he specifically says, hey, young people, youth. He says, you who are young, make the most of your youthfulness. In a few minutes, we're going to get to chapter 12. And in verse 8 begins a poem about the decline of our bodies as we age, culminating in our death. And what he's saying is while you still have just unlimited supplies of energy and vitality, enjoy life. Before your mind can't remember things, enjoy life. Before you go to sleep and throw out your back, enjoy life. Enjoy the fact that you're going to get up and you don't have to worry about that. God has given you and I the gift of life. And it would be foolishness of the highest order to squander that gift with constant grumpiness and complaining. In fact, let's look at the last half of verse 9. Because not only is it foolish to live with ever-present ingratitude and complaining, the Bible also tells us that it will be judged here's the last half of verse 9 but know that for all these things what he just said God will bring you into judgment now at first glance even when I first read this I thought Solomon was saying listen enjoy life but not too much like have a good time but not too good of a time you know, as if he's saying, listen, if I just tell these people to enjoy life, they're going to just go run wild with that. Now, Solomon does advocate moderation throughout this book. And wisdom would certainly say that true joy exists within the boundaries of God's law and order. But that's not what he's particularly highlighting here. He's already told us that God will judge those who pursue pleasure in ungodly ways. Remember chapter 2? He had this whole pleasure experiment where he said, I'm going to live life to the selfishly hedonistic full. And he tried every single pleasure under the sun. And he realized they're ultimately not that pleasing. Satisfaction isn't found there. So he's already told us that. Never does Solomon encourage loose living and reckless abandonment. Even in the very end, in our final sermon next week, he's going to say that God will bring every deed into the light, whether hidden or secret, whether public or known, all of our deeds will be judged by God. So yes, Solomon does uh, encourage us to live in moderation. And it's true. But contextually, that's not the point he's making right here. The point he's making right now is our failure to enjoy life and live joyfully before him is grounds for judgment. 
Now that is a profound point. In other words, what he's saying is failure to live joyfully isn't just merely foolish, it's sinful. It's sinful. Grumpiness, complaining, just a perpetual state of gloom and doom is sinful. And God will bring it into judgment. Now, why is that? Because our failure and refusal to enjoy the gift of life is a tangible expression of our disbelief in the goodness of God. In other words, God has given you a spectacular gift called life. There's that fly, Kevin. I see it. It's real. God has given us a tangible and beautiful gift called life. And for us to complain about it, for us to be grumpy about it, for us to not see it for the goodness that it is, is to, is to deny the goodness of the one who gave it to us in the first place. Our lack of joy is a statement about God. See, those who live with joy, they're making a statement that God is good and he has given us plenty to enjoy life with, right? You're saying, God, you're a good gift giver. You've given me all that I need for a life of joy. And conversely, those who live with perpetual gloominess are making a statement that God is not good, that he, has ultimate, he is ultimately withholding what I need in order to be glad. Deuteronomy 28 verses 45 to 47 makes the same point. He's talking to the people of God. And he says, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed. Why? Because you did not obey, obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. And here's the second reason. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. So don't miss this. Curses will befall the people of God. Yes, because they failed to obey God's moral law. And because they did not serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart. In other words, it's not, it's not enough to just obey and do the right things. That God cares how we do it. Look at Romans 1, verse 18 to 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What has he shown? Look, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now don't miss this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their hearts, their foolish hearts were darkened. So here's what Paul is saying. Everyone has an innate knowledge that we are creatures who owe our existence to a creator. Our problem is we suppress that knowledge. It's not that we don't know it. It's that we are actively suppressing that living in disbelief of that. And therefore we are without excuse because it is obvious that there is, uh, that the reason there is something rather than nothing is because of someone. That is, that, that, like to deny that is, is to deny the most obvious truth in the entire world. You should be able to go outside and say, wow, there is something rather than nothing because of someone. And if you can't say that, this is what the Bible is saying. You are suppressing the most obvious truth of all truths. And in our suppression and pride, we fail to acknowledge that creator and give thanks to him. This is Paul's way of saying we live without joy. Gratitude and joy go hand in hand in our sin. We fail to properly enjoy the gift of life we've been given and to properly thank the one who
who has given us such a gift. The screw tape letters is written by C.S. Lewis. It's a fictional story written in the form of a series of letters from a senior demon named Screwtape to his nephew Wormwood, who is a junior tempter. So he's like t- uh, mentoring him. Now it's fictional, so it's not like there's not really this guy Screwtape and Wormwood, but it's written to help Christians understand the nature of temptation and how to resist it. And listen to what he says in one of the letters. God is a hedonist at heart. A hedonist is a pleasure seeker. So God is a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade, are only like foam on the seashore, out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least, sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. He says everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. We fight under cruel disadvantages. Nothing is naturally on our side. What is C.S. Lewis saying? He's saying God is not anti-joy. If you've ever believed that God is anti-joy or against your joy, that is a false belief that needs to be uh, 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 exchanged for the truth. Rather, the Bible tells us at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. We did not invent joy, guys. God did. He invented joy. He has made life joyful. And if we can't find joy in the everyday reality of life, like Lewis said, in the sleeping, the watching, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working, and that says something about us and our ungratefulness. Not God. In other words, God has graciously given us all that we need for a life of joy. And if you can't find a reason to rejoice, then we need to take a serious look at our own hearts. What we do when we can't find a life of joy is we look outside and go, what about all these circumstances? What is God not giving me? And we think God is withholding from us. And we think, God, if you would just do things the way I want them done, then of course I would live a life of joy. But the Bible says it's the other way around. God has given us everything we need for a life of joy. And if we can't find it, we need to look into our own hearts. That's where the problem is. Not only is living a life void of joy miserable, not only is it going to be judged, it is also anti-gospel. Here's what I mean. It's, it's anti-good news. One of the ways, one of the primary ways, God, the invisible God, makes himself visible to the world is through his children as we enjoy life and exhibit joy. So does a watching world look at your life and see a steady flow of joy that would lead them to say, Look at this person. In in, in a world of doom and gloom and constant agitation, in a world that is always talking about the problems, look at this person. They just exude joy. And then go, what fuels that joy? It is so anti-everything that I see around me. What do they have? What do they know? What is fueling that joy? Or do they see a person just schlepping through life, gloomy, grumpy, and joyless, just like everybody else? Friends, what more do we need to find joy? And the answer is nothing. You don't need anything else. There is not something else outside of you that you need to find joy. If you are in Christ, you have access to the pleasures of God. You have access to joy in the fullest sense. What you need to do is look around you and see all the good gifts God has given you 
and rejoice in them. One of the things I do as a parent when my children are having a hard time finding joy and they're being ungrateful is say, I just want you to write down 15 things that, you're joy- that, that you can be grateful for, that you have. And then when they come back with that list, I go, give me 15 more. And they're like, but I already wrote down. I'm like, trust me, there are hundreds of things that you can be joyful about. And, and at first they get more grumpy at the very beginning of that process. But by the end, when I've sent them back several times and they see this really long list, they start to go, I see what you're saying. I have so much to be grateful about. And I'm focusing on this little tiny thing that I'm not getting. And as is often the case, I also think, man, I do the same thing. It's not just that kids need to go through this grateful exercise. I do too. Because when I don't feel gratefulness, when I can't find joy, it's because I'm not looking at the big picture. I'm not looking at all the things that God has given me. Name them one by one. You know the Psalms encourage us? They say, let, there's a psalm that says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Like we're encouraged to just, as the redeemed people of God, to just list out our blessings one by one. Listen to me. If you are in Christ, that means right now you are forgiven, you are loved, you are adopted into God's family. That is reason enough for an eternal joy of rejoicing. Think about the grace upon grace that you've been given. If you find that you can't uh, rejoice, rehearse all the good gifts God has given you. Rejoice in the joy of your salvation until the ingratitude and entitlement melt away and give way to the light and warmth of joy. Friends, life is brief. Death is coming. The preacher says, enjoy life while you still have life. To enjoy. Our first point, a life shaped by death will rejoice in your days. Here's the second. A life shaped by death will remove anxiety from your heart. Verse 10, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for your youth and the dawn of life are vanity. See, verse 10 is the other side of the coin of rejoicing. These commands go together. So you need to rejoice, but you also need to remove the thing that often squashes and kills your joy. And it's anxiety. Anxiety is a killjoy. In verse 10, the preacher tells us to remove vexation. This is a Hebrew word that refers to the kind of emotional stress and anxiety that makes enjoying life difficult. It's the picture of a troubled, uh, frenetic, agitated heart. It's not a heart at rest. Think about even just a heart at rest uh, with, with a normal pace, a healthy rhythm. And then a heart that's in distress, it's, it's beating frantically, right? That's a vexed heart. This is where I love the honesty of the Bible. It doesn't say that vexation and trouble and anxiety and pain are mere probables in life. It speaks about them as a given. It's saying, listen, your, your heart is going to become vexed. You, you are going to get anxious. You are going to be stressed. No one escapes. No one goes through life without it. They're not a likelihood. It's a reality. You will experience anxiety and stress, and your body will experience pain. And yet, what the preacher is saying, these, do not, these, these aren't supposed to rule in your heart and displace your joy. You can actually have joy in the midst of pain. You will have dark days. You're going to have days where the most appropriate response is grief and lament. At the same time, if you're going to experience joy, the preacher says you need to remove anxiety from the throne of your heart. It shouldn't have a place of primacy. So how do we do that? Well, The preacher doesn't really go into that here, but I do want to leave you with a few things to help you. First, you need to know that God knows we experience anxiety. And I don't merely mean that he knows that like theoretically because he's omniscient, he knows everything. I mean that um, with, with kind of the tenderness of Psalm 103 verse 13 and 14. 
The psalmist says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And listen, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows our frame. He knows that we are fragile. He knows that it can take the smallest thing to to change the very course and trajectory of our day. And his response is not one of cruelty or impatience. I think often we think that God just gets impatient with us when we're weak. It's actually the opposite. He has the compassion of a father. He knows it. Second, we're instructed to speak to the Lord about our anxiety and fear. Ed Welch writes this, our fears and anxieties are personal problems. They need the right person who is both strong and loving, who both hears us and also speaks with us. Speak your anxieties to him, to the Lord, rather than trying to solve them on your own. We are instructed over and over when we experience anxiety to speak those things to the Lord. Third, the Lord draws near to us in our fear. Because that's really what anxiety is. It's fear. Psalm 121 is a whole psalm about the nearness of the Lord in the day of trouble. The psalmist asks, where does my help come from? Answer, my help comes from the Lord. When you need help, the Lord draws near, the maker of heaven and earth. Fourth, focus on today. Anxiety by its very nature is future focused. It's, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's a feeling of being out of control of the things that are coming down the pipeline. We don't control the future until we get anxious about it, right? In the midst of that, where does Jesus direct our attention? He says, worry about today. Matthew 6, 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do you realize in the Lord's Prayer, we are encouraged to pray for daily bread, not weekly bread, monthly bread, yearly bread. Like God, give me all the sustenance I need for, for a long haul so I don't have to talk to you anymore. No, no, no. Daily bread. God gives you enough. This was the whole theme in the desert. God gave them manna for today. If they tried to gather more, what happened? It rotted. He wanted them to daily depend on him. Focus on today. When we worry about tomorrow, we're trying to solve tomorrow's problems on today's grace. But tomorrow's problems aren't solved with Uh, uh, today's grace, tomorrow's problems are solved with the grace given tomorrow. Focus on today. Use today's grace for today and trust that the Lord will give you more tomorrow. And finally, pray for faith to trust. The anecdote for fear is faith. We often have small faith, but good news is we have a big savior. So it works out for us. He's the one who can answer the prayer. Lord, I believe but help my unbelief. No one in here, myself included, has perfect faith. No one. So right now, what I know to be 100% true of you is wherever you are in your journey of faith, it's a journey and you still have progress to make. So you can say, Lord, I believe, but I also have this, this, this gap here. And that's where the anxiety lives. It's in that gap where, where faith ends and fear begins at that gap, we're we're meant to pray, Lord, I believe, just help my unbelief. Watch the Lord answer that prayer. Again, this isn't a full-scale sermon on anxiety. That said, I think these are some helpful steps in combating it. And then let me also give you a couple of excellent resources. First, there is the Boston Center for Biblical Counseling. It's it's fairly new and it is excellent. There are some very well-trained competent and capable counselors there who can sit with you and talk with you. Seven Mile Road as a church fully endorses the Boston Center for Biblical Counseling. Several of our members and regular attenders have received help on various issues at the center. Let me tell you their names. I'm just joking. (laughs) But for real, like people in this room right now have gone and received great help. So there should be no stigma around it. You shouldn't go, well, that makes me weak. Guess what? We are weak. We need help. And sometimes, a lot of times, 
just sitting with someone who, who the Lord has just gifted with uh, looking into the heart. Like you go to a heart surgeon when you have cardiac problems, same thing. These are just skilled, soul-level surgeons who can sit with you and help you process things. I have personally benefited from biblical counseling, and I fully commend BCBC to you. So if you have things going on in your life, and you go, I just feel like I'm stuck, could be a good idea to go see someone. And then second, we have at the resource table, I think two copies left of a little booklet called Overcoming Anxiety, Relief for Worried People by David Pallison. It's like 20-something pages. Read it. Great things in there that will that's specifically dealing with anxiety. Easy to read, very helpful. You can pick one up today for free. Friends, life is brief. Death is coming. In light of that, let's live a life shaped by death that rejoices in our days and seeks to remove anxiety from our hearts. Here's our final point. A life shaped by death will remember your creator. Chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Now he begins this section with a command to remember your creator in the days of your youth. And what is going to follow is a powerful poem in one of the most profound books ever written. And this poem is meant to have you contemplate your days. It's meant to make you think about your own death, your maker, your pursuits, the purposes, the things that you give your life to. This is wisdom literature at its finest. And here wisdom says, those who are wise will remember their creator. This requires intentionality because our default is to forget. But here it's written down for us. So we can't plead ignorance. We can't be like, well, the Bible never told me to remember my creator. It has. I have. I've told you to do that. You can't plead ignorance now. Why should we remember our creator? Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, Lord. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So God is worthy of our time and our thought to receive glory and honor. Why? Because God creates and sustains everything. You see, God as creator is not just something that we find in Genesis 1 and 2. It is talked about over and over and over and over all throughout the Bible. We are creatures who owe our very life and breath to a creator. Created things owe everything to their creator. He has creative rights over us. And notice he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. In other words, the sooner the better. The poem that follows is going to describe the dark days followed by aging days followed by death day. When should you remember your creator? When should you consider the reality that you will die one day and meet your maker? He says, now, as soon as possible. Now this runs contrary to the rhythm of our world. We're told, put off thinking about death. Don't think about death today, think about it later. But the problem is, you and I may not get a later. See, we live life with death-canceling headphones. Anyone, anyone have those noise-canceling headphones? You know, you put them on, and it's like the whole world drowns out. That's how we live, with death-canceling headphones. La, 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 la. We don't want to be reminded of our death. So we do everything to put it out of our purview. Ecclesiastes says, take them off. The wisest thing you could do today is think about you, the reality that you will die. The implication is there is wisdom and advantage in thinking about the day of your death. Remembering your creator today in the day of your youth. So elementary students, where are you? Raise your hand if you're in elementary school. Hey, today, remember your creator today. Where are my middle schoolers? Middle schoolers, hey, look at me. Remember, you are a creature. You have been created. 
Remember him. Where are my tweenagers? Also, you guys, I got to say it twice. Remember your creator, the teenagers. Where are my people in their 20s? Anybody in their 20s? Hey, Dylan, remember your creator. Zoomers, you're a Zoomer if you didn't know that. We're the millennials. Don't be, don't be afraid. You guys, you guys are millennials. Remember your creator. Right? Gen Xers, come on. Remember your creator. Everybody, remember your creator. Now as he moves to this poem, you're going to see the word before three times. Those are the textual markers. So he says, remember your creator before this point. Remember your creator before this happens. Remember your creator before this happens. So here's the first one. He says, remember your creator before evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Now listen to what he's saying. He's saying, before disagreeable, dark, and evil days come, develop a theology and a rhythm of remembering your creator. Now, friends, you know this to be true, that there will be hard and difficult days. There will be days when you just look back and long for simpler, easier times. In a world that is marked by futility and vanity and brevity, hard days aren't merely possible or probable. They are inevitable. Right? All the older people in the room go, yes. You're looking at me like, I know. And he's saying, you need to have remembered and steeped in and thought about the goodness of your God before those days come. Because when those days come, it's very easy to get swallowed up by them. It's very easy in the midst of darkness to not know where the light is. And he's saying, before those days come, remember your creator. Build into your life a habit of remembering him. Now, remember in the Bible isn't merely like cognitive recall, okay? It's not that like if I were to give you a test, like true or false, you're a creature. True. True or false, you have a creator. True. That's not what he's talking about here. It's not can you get the answer right on a test. It's living every single moment with respect to the reality of your maker. See, the problem is we live like functional atheists. We're not actually atheists. We don't really believe that there is no God. Theologically, we believe in God, but practically and functionally, we live with a kind of God amnesia that makes us functional atheists. We plan our lives, we live our days as if God doesn't exist. That's not remembering your creator. We live and make decisions as if we are completely independent. Do you see how this is pride and arrogance of the highest order? We aren't independent. We are dependent creatures. The preacher says, remember your creator. When you come to those dark days, you need to have built into your life a remembrance of your maker. But not just before dark days. He also gives us another before marker. Look at verses 2 to 5. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. He says, remember your maker before you start to decline. It's beautiful poetry here, guys. He's talking about your creator and then what does he do? He hearkens back to the first days of creation when he creates the sun and the moon and the stars. And verse 2 pictures the decay of the sun and light and moon and stars. It pictures creation itself coming undone. Why? To tell you one day, you will come undone. We often think of ourselves like permanent fixtures in the cosmos, right? The sun's never going out. The stars are fixed there. But like them, one day we will come undone. Look at me. You are not a permanent fixture in this universe. And there's coming a day when you will come undone. Verse 3, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed. Now Solomon shifts from the cosmology here to describe a great house in a state where the keepers of the house, the servants, have got, gotten too old to perform their duties of upkeep. 
Their bodies tremble and can't perform the work anymore. Men who were once strong and could stand upright can no longer stand upright. Doesn't that happen to us as we get old? We start to hunch more because we just can't stand up straight. Our backs are bent and hunched over. Grinders here, those are your teeth. They cease. They're no longer able to chew. Why? Because they've fallen out. The windows are dimmed. Pictures the loss of vision that come as our eyes grow weak and dim. Verse 4, and the doors of the street are shut when the sound of grinding is low. The doors of the street are shut. It shows how in our old age our activity declines. Elderly who can't leave their home, what are they called? Shut-ins. The doors are shut. Activity slows to a crawl. Just going out to CVS to pick up a prescription becomes a whole day's affair, right? Just one errand becomes so difficult as activity slows to a halt. And one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. This pictures the reality that young people can sleep through anything. You can't even wake them up, but older people at the slightest sound, they're up. And what happens? Can't go back to sleep. Verse 5, those who are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way and the almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along and desires fail because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. You see, in our old age, we become paranoid as our minds begin to decay. Our hair becomes white like almond tree blossoms. The once spry grasshopper who can jump from one blade of grass to the next in its final days is just kind of dragging itself along. Likewise, our mobility slows as we struggle to move about. We have to have walkers and canes. Desires begin to fail as we come to know that our time has come. And what happens? The mourners start to gather in the street. Why? Because it's coming and it's coming soon. What's the point? Remember your creator while you can still run. He's saying, remember your creator while you can still think well. Remember your creator while your days are still bright and long. Remember your creator while you can still get something done for him. Remember your creator when your days are long and you've got energy to praise him. Remember your creator when you still have potential and days ahead of you. Remember your, your, your creator while you're a teenager, while you're young. Remember your creator today. Why? Because one day you will die. Verse 6, before the silver cord is snapped, before the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel is broken at the cistern, and like dust you return to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. These verses describe your actual day of death. It pictures a silver necklace being snapped, a golden bowl being broken, a pitcher that's used for water being shattered, the wheel that allows the bucket to go down into the cistern, it's broken. Each of these metaphors pictures something valuable being broken and no longer usable. Friends, you're described here as gold, silver, a vessel for water. You're valuable. You mean something to God. As wisdom says, remember your maker before the day of your death. What a poem. We would do well to spend some time this week going back through verses 1 to 8. This is wisdom that would have you remember that you owe God your life. Because God created you and one day you will come undone. It may be years from now. You may live to see a hundred. Or you may die sooner than you expect. This morning Ecclesiastes is asking us before that day comes. How will you live? Will you let your life be shaped by death? Will you live your life fully aware that God created you on purpose for a purpose. See, one of the greatest news that you could ever be told is that you were made by a creator on purpose for a purpose. Terry Pratchett once said, 
Inside every old person is a young person wondering what happened. Ecclesiastes is saying, don't let that happen to you. Don't wake up one day and go, what happened? Where did they all go? What did I do with my life? Why did I give myself to such trivial, vain, futile things? Don't learn wisdom by way of regret. Learn it by way of remembrance. Remember your creator. You were created on purpose for a purpose. Don't wait until the end of your life to live your life. Let your looming date with death shape your life as you remember your maker. See, when you remember rightly your maker, you're going to live a life that honors him. You live a life constantly repenting of sin and realigning yourself with the Lord. You live a life that's concerned with fulfilling God's purposes for your life. And the wisdom, the reason he's saying do it now, do it soon, do it in the days of your youth is because the longer you wait, the harder it is to orient your life to God. See, if you live a life in your 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s of just perpetually in this rhythm of rejecting God, you know what happens? You become more and more stuck in your ways, ingrained in your patterns as time moves on. Wisdom says develop a rhythm of repentance and remembrance as soon as possible so that you walk in rhythms of grace. Don't live as a functional atheist. Live a life that is in constant remembrance of the Lord. That's a life shaped by death. This theme of remembrance is one that you can find that carries from the beginning to the middle and all the way to the end. And it culminates on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. Luke 22, verse 19 and 20 says this. These should be familiar words. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Friends, the broken body and shed blood of Christ is worthy of your faith, and it's worthy of your everyday remembrance. For the Christian, it's not just merely that we have to remember our creator, but we are called to remember our Savior. That's why we do it every time we gather, because we want not only our future death to shape our life, we want the death of Christ to shape our lives. The call of wisdom is don't wait. Begin enjoying life today. Do the soul work of removing anxiety from your heart and live with a thoughtful, conscious remembrance of your creator and your savior. Let's pray.